Fill to Capacity, Crazy Good Stories and Timely Topics, Podcast for people too stubborn to quit and too creative not to make a difference, inspiring, irreverent, and informative. Stay tuned. Hi, welcome to Fill 2 Capacity. I'm your host, Pat Benincasa. Today's episode is Finding Joy in Elder Advocacy, Passion, Purpose, and Impact. My guest is Corey Levin, who owns Navigating Elderhood, and she provides advocacy and skilled care for clients and their families in personal care, end-of-life planning, and recovery care. And Corey has this really interesting background. She's completed all her preliminary master's level nursing courses at St. Catherine University. She is Red Cross certified nurse assistant and CPR certified. End-of-life doula trained by the International End-of-Life Doula Association, Shalom Hospice End-of-Life Doula Volunteer, member of the Minnesota Death Collaborative, Reiki Master Level, Yoga Teacher, Birth Doula. Well, welcome, Corey. It's so nice to have you on Filter Capacity. Thank you, Pat. I really appreciate you inviting me to be here today. Well, let's start. If you could tell us a bit about the work that you do at Navigating Elderhood and also what brought you to do this work? Why is it important to you? Very good question. And I will try to keep time today and do the best (laughs) I can. So the journey began when I became a birth doula about 19 years ago. I was invited to a girlfriend's birth and she was like, will you come and assist me while I birth my first baby? And she happens to be a podiatrist. Her husband's an MD. And they were quite nervous, as we all are, going into a new situation. And I thought to myself, I don't like blood and I don't like the hospital. No. And then I thought, wait, I can't say no to Robin. Okay, fine. So I end up holding her left leg. And yes, there was blood all over me. And it was probably one of the most memorable, beautiful experiences Mm. that I was a part of for somebody else. After that experience, Robin said, you need to go get certified and become a birth doula, Corey. This is kind of your natural gift. And I thought, Mm -hmm. okay. So it took me a little bit. I think I probably went to a few more births and then did go ahead and do a training uh, here in Minneapolis. And the end of life doula training fell on my lap during 2020 when I had the opportunity to do a training virtually that I had been kind of eyeing for about three years, and at the same time, naturally practicing with families. So the end-of-life doula work just fell on my lap, similar to the birth doula work, and those models are very similar, Mm -hmm. beginning of life and end of life. They mirror each other in the sense that they're both quite sacred. The skill set that's brought to those experiences that are raw and vulnerable and real are very similar when really looked at under a microscope of what things occur, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, medical as well. 
And so I have that wealth of understanding from my yoga training, anatomy, it began. Then I moved into a program at St. Kate's thinking I wanted to be a hospice nurse and got trained medically professionally as a certified nurse assistant into the disease process. And again, anatomy and physiology was a prerequisite for the nursing program that I thought I wanted and ended up not following through with because the skill set that I carried, I realized really was individual and working in an institution, I wouldn't be able to do all that I have to offer, which is how navigating elderhood began. So it, it was kind of a 17 to 20 year in the making business. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, came across an article in Lake Minnetonka Magazine that mentioned how your role is not about fixing problems, but rather filling the gaps when medicine alone can't help. Can you elaborate on what it means to fill those gaps? Absolutely. And again, this is a long-winded question, but keeping it to point, our death is not a medical process. Death is something that's natural, it's unavoidable, and it's universal. It's something we all experience. And medicine is very strong in our culture and has its place. But when I went back to school to St. Kate's and when I began working with individuals, I was noticing that these deeper conversations, when there were diagnoses that came forward with illness, when the medical system could not fix or support with medicine or surgery, different ailments, different situations in not just elders, but people of all ages, I recognized what is the conversation that What are we doing? What are we talking about? What are the alternatives? And going back to the birth doula model, we show up to births with all different things in our back pocket. I feel I'm a clown or a magician, and I just have all these tools and toys and things that I bring to these experiences. So each person has a different need. And when medicine and families hear, we can't help you from their doctors then the conversation needs to continue and change. There are so many alternatives in healing. So as mentioned in the beginning, I'm a Reiki practitioner. There are some individuals that I provide Reiki for, Mm -hmm. um, which is energy balancing, helping individuals balance and heal energetically. We work with the chakras. I also am somebody who happens to carry the skill of being very intuitive. So... It's something that's hard to explain, but there are questions, ideas, and concepts that come to me when I come to these situations when people think, oh, it's over. Well, it's not. Mm-hmm. So each each family has a different need. Each client has a different need. And how to navigate the relationships, the disease, yeah. and the care looks so different. If, if I could jump in for a moment, yeah. Corey, I'm really struck by the fact that you had this physical training, the Reiki, the nursing, but yet what you're talking about is our humane existential response to someone dying, that this emotional connection and the care that that requires, it seems like you juggle that part of it to connect with with someone, you know, 
someone leaving this world and having someone like you there, it, it must be quite a calling for you to do this work. It really is because I've really learned that in my 43 years on earth, that there's so much fear around death. And similar to my first experience with birth with my girlfriend, Robin, I was brought into a death experience that was absolutely beautiful. That taught me that this can be beautiful. I've been reading about it for seven mm -hmm. years. I had been doing some volunteer work and hearing about it at Shalom. But then when I actually was able to experience it, it's this con continuously learning place for me to offer families yeah. this wisdom, this information, these ideas, these options. And we have choices. And that is a huge part about myself as a care advocate is mm -hmm. sharing with individuals what the options are and what I have in my goodie bag based on what I've researched what I do it for continuing education, and then what I experience. Yeah. If, if we could shift gears into a broader picture, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this podcast a lot, and a, a question came to mind about society having a duty to protect elderly and people with disabilities. And I came across a quote by Nancy Berlinger, a bioethicist at the Hastings Center, and she said, the foundational questions about ethics are about what we owe others, not just ourselves, not just our circle of family and friends. So in your opinion, Corey, as a society, you mentioned earlier, we're not easy about talking about death in this society. What steps as a society can we take to foster a more inclusive, age-friendly environment that ensures the dignity and well-being of elderly and people with disabilities? What can we do as a society? What do you see? That's, that's such a great question. And the first thing that comes to me is we need to slow down. We need to open our eyes. We need to remember what's important. The culture that we're living in is so medically focused. It's also very much into finances and what we have on the external and the beauty of our lives are what happens inside. What we yeah. take to our grave is inside. So what I would encourage folks is to have that short conversation and not blow off that elderly that wants to visit at Target. Mm -hmm. Simply just listening and holding space because that conversation rather at Target or the grocery store could make that person's weak because they might be lonely and we don't know their backstory. Mm -hmm. But really just being present for elders. And I also think looking out for vulnerable adults. I was driving to work on Highway 7 and going the opposite direction. There was a woman of age that was walking with her arms out in a T. And she looked like she was trying to balance on the side of the road. And so I called the police just to have them check on her that maybe she wasn't confused. And that she was safely getting to where she needed to go. Yeah. So I think it's, again, keeping your eyes open, slowing down, and paying attention, and recognizing, and I just had this conversation with my client yesterday, who is 89 and filled with knowledge, life experiences, riches in her family, hmm. all the things. And we were talking about how this need to hear the stories of the generations above so we can pass them on. 
and the importance of keeping alive some of the, whether it's tradition or the stories being told. So oftentimes in end of life, to keep individuals feeling lively is having them tell their story and audio taping them yes. and writing them down for folks. That helps in end of life. I, that's part of some of the work that myself and other doulas in the community do. Fill to Capacity is brought to you by one of the most celebrated persons in history, Joan of Arc. How about carrying a bit of Joan's courage with you all the time? You can with the Joan of Arc Scroll Medal designed by award-winning artist Pat Benincasa. With loving attention to detail, Joan has banner in hand and is charging off the scroll-shaped medal with the words, Be at my side. This beautiful brass alloy medal is ideal for holiday or special occasion gifts. Don't wait. Capture a bit of history and inspiration today. Visit www.patbenincasa-art.com. Now, back to the podcast. That's wonderful. I know for uh, genealogists, they really encourage younger family members to take time and talk to older family members and say, tell me your story. And they record them now, which I think to what you're saying, there's such a rich legacy of life lived. Yes. And this, this culture sometimes dismisses older adults as, well, they're old. As if somehow they came down the cosmic baby chute at 80 years old, right? <laughs> and these people, everybody, they've lived. And they've there's so lived. much. Yes, they've lived. And we sure could learn something from that. Oh, we could. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to ask a broader question about elder abuse or neglect and elder advocacy. And... I know that elder abuse is defined as the mistreatment or exploitation of people over 65, and it can take many different forms. Can you just highlight some of the forms elderly are at risk to have happen to them or, yeah, something along those lines? That's a great question. So, again, this conversation came up yesterday with some folks at the grocery store. Just being mindful of your cart and your purse. It can be as simple as that for aging adults that are vulnerable. So I do talk with the families that I work with about safety measures all the time. And I also will constantly remind individuals if I'm serving them outside of their home with you know, personal belongings, just the safety and security in our world today. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge one. The topic of abuse is very real and neglect. And one of the best things that I learned from a family member Aunt Bess, who I named my second daughter after, is in these facilities, oftentimes short-staffed, overworked, and that has become more and more an issue with our aging population, to put out love. She put out a dish of chocolates, Hmm. and she thanked every staff that came through that room. Whatever energy, whatever words, whatever job they brought to the table from the director to the person who helped clean her up in the uh, restroom. She offered them chocolates. She asked how they were doing. Hmm. She created a space of love and this 
energetic exchange. And when she no longer could get make sure that dish was filled with chocolate, her family members kept that dish full. Mm. And I believe that what we can do is we can put out love and ask people how they need help, honor that they're having a difficult day. But the other thing is, yes, when there is neglect and abuse, report it, report it, report it, stay on it. I've watched other folks do this very successfully with a lot of grit. It's hard today, but it's not acceptable. And when you work towards something, your energy goes there. And usually it it comes out how it's supposed to in the experience that you're involved in that situation. So it's a difficult topic. It It is very sad. And that's partly why I started my own business. I want to uh, jump ahead. I I had one question that many people have loved ones in long-term care facilities, assisted living or nursing home and coming out of the pandemic, which really thinned out medical staff. If you have a loved one in a, in that long-term care facility, how can you know that that person's being cared for? Like, how do you know? Yeah. So I encourage individuals to ask questions. You know, I support adult children in asking questions. I support them in bringing treats. I support mm-hmm. them in reporting what they see and hear. And it's a lot of time and energy that's put out. Yeah. Yes. And I do have to say, on a positive note, there are a lot of volunteers that are coming back into the facilities that had to break. I'm seeing a lot of retired folks coming back and doing beautiful work from music to art. So the programming has picked up again, and it's really helped all of us. Oh, that's good to hear. Yes, yes. So change is happening in front of my eyes while the little time I'm here on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good change. Uh, Another aspect, we're at a point where boomers or almost boomers are taking care of aged parents. Mm -hmm. And there's a challenge when you have an aged parent who really needs care or they need to stop driving And no matter what you do to try to encourage them to maybe move to assisted living, they resist it. They don't want to hear about it. And it can often be so frustrating all the way around. Do you have advice for anybody in that situation? That's a tough one. I do. You know, I hear this a lot. This is a very common scenario right now. And there's a couple factors who the person is that's speaking to the aging parent, which adult child or loved one, right? How it's done. Are we Mm -hmm. shaming them? Okay. What are we making this about? Is this about their safety? Is this about convenience for you? What was the relationship like in the past? So there's many dynamics that lead to the challenge. And I've seen these challenges be overcome in ways that blow my mind. So the learnings have been beautiful for me as an advocate. And then the other fact is in the end of the day, there are individuals who will voice and have voiced their whole life. I will die on this property. Yep. I am staying here and we have to let go of control. 
And that's very hard for many of us. But what has been helpful, and I'm going to kind of go back to your question about driver's license, all of the clients that I am honored to work with have been seen under a, a medical scope for most of their entire life. Okay. So when one of my clients got to a point of them needing their license, you know, another test taken, it was conversation among amongst the adult children and safety, but then it ultimately went down to the doctor saying, we need you too. Yeah. So it's that collaboration, it's that communication and really staying on it, which is time consuming. So having the medical professional make that statement, that request, that diagnosis often will be the the tipping point in addition hmm. to family members. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's that teaming up in a loving way. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Oh, those are great points. You know, I had the honor of having, having Kathy Greiner. She's the executive director of Rebuilding Together Minnesota. And that's an, a nonprofit that's dedicated to aging in place. Mm -hmm. And they go in and they physically repair housing, mm. adding uh, handrails, ramps for people, elderly and disabled, who, who can't afford to have that done. And what they've done is they work with other agencies. It's not just the building in place and having them age in place. It's having social worker or health agencies connected in a respectful way. And I think what you're talking about when you said right away, how is this being asked of the older adult? And what Rebuilding Together Minnesota, it's really about dignity, <laughs> respecting someone's <laughs> dignity. I mean, can you imagine being told you can't drive anymore? Mm -hmm. I mean, that I mean, it's, you feel like your legs are cut off, that you, you can't be mobile and you're dependent. And mm -hmm. maybe the biggest fear is that dependency. Yes. I'd like to give you a quote. I, I really love this. Doctors diagnose, nurses heal, and caregivers make sense of it all. Corey, what would you say about this statement? <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Many of us end-of-life doulas will talk about how we get to do the work that a lot of the hospice nurses or just RNs in general sign up for. Mm -hmm. We get to do that, have those true conversations. We get to give that true comfort care, meet the needs of the individual, and really see the magic in all of it. And caregivers do a lot. I mean, again... A conversation with a client when I mentioned I was coming on this podcast, she said, one of the most special things is that I carry a variety of skill and I'm flexible. So with my personality, I have a few things in mind when I show up to serve an individual, but I will also know that all those things will go out the door and that I need to be fully present in my heart, in my mind looking after the safety of an individual who most likely is in a vulnerable place, how can I serve that person to help them live and feel well that day? What skill am I bringing forth? What does need to be done? What doesn't need to be done? Yeah. Who needs to hear about this? Is this important? Is this an emergency? Or is this just something that needs to be vocalized and it's an emotional need? So really differentiating what can and can't be done and weighing out the risks and benefits of the situation. So each day is very much a day to be unknown. And that's the joy, for sure. 
it's almost like you are a PR director in a sense. You're you're juggling the needs of your client first and foremost, but then they may have family members and loved ones who have opinions and who may want to tell you what you need to be doing. And then you have the medical staff and the nursing staff. You have all, it's almost like a constellation in this orbit of all these different entities. And then you come into that. How do you deal with all that? That's a great question. And just to go back with the medical staff, one thing as an advocate that I have supported individuals with that I think is really important for all caregivers, adult children and loved ones to do Mm -hmm. with their loved one who is either ill or aging, all the above, is to really reevaluate if the medication has risk, has benefits, and what are the side effects and how are they helping that individual each day live. So that's the role that I am able to play in understanding disease, disease process, and aging in a different light. Yeah. So I do have those conversations and empower my my clients to have those conversations when I continuously hear, why am I taking all these pills? This isn't doing anything. Can we talk about what you're saying under your breath? Because that actually means a lot to me and the role I play. So having those conversations. So that's a care advocate example. But how do I navigate back to your question? All the things. Some days are challenging. It's not the client that's challenging. It's the family. (laughs) And, And I have some of my biggest breakthroughs and mountains I've climbed were with seven children and the family that all wanted or needed. So I created a system of emails to get the information out to everybody at the same time. So I was very organized with the structure of communication. Mm. And then I have another family that has three children, one out of state, two in state, and there's always dynamics and relationships and favorites and jokes. And One thing that I really, again, take home is as an advocate, watching out-of-state adults connect back with their siblings and parents post-death. And I've noticed that the role that I play as my cousin who's a lawyer states that I end up being a social worker. Yeah. So getting everybody on a Zoom call to hear the information that I am conveying about the situation of mom and or dad and so everybody has the facts and then they can all amongst themselves ask questions or argue or decide but I'm just there to advocate for the client and then share information in my contract it says with adult children so we make that those decisions up front so it's been very helpful to and challenging and a good learning piece for me with how to manage and deal with people in ways I've never, yeah. um, in a loving way. So it sounds like you're pretty good at boundaries. <laughs> I'm learning. Thank you. <laughs> I think we all are learning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a constant. Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. I, I'd like to go back in time. The pandemic really, really affected older adults and people with disabilities. How were you able to do your job, especially at the beginning when there was lockdown, people couldn't go in and out, staffs were severely shortened. It it was just a crazy time. How were you able to do your work? Pat, that's when the the true blessing of 
my purpose in doing this work came to me was when I was working virtually with about 12 women. We were on calls every other week. I joined this group a year after they had all begun serving this community, which was Shalom. And we were sent modules to train on how to properly put on PPE. Okay. The equipment, the robes, the slippers, the gloves, the masks, the hand sanitizer was donated and given to us as volunteers. So I took it upon myself when family members were not able to enter the Shalom to scrub in and go visit people, turn on my phone mm-hmm. and have them FaceTime their loved one because their loved ones could not be there Yeah, to help them die. And as a medically trained professional, as a volunteer, I feel like it was a gift that was given to me to have the opportunity to get in a building when I was like, I'm the only one here right now, it feels like. There's one nurse on this floor and there's three people dying. I'm going to get the number and the name, you know, with, you know, legal permission from the volunteer coordinator to not just visit room 302, but there's someone I heard about in 610 last week that needed help and somebody on 509. So I just took it upon myself to go visit and touch and and give the love and presence I could. And again, I couldn't fix it, but I I practice Reiki energy. I practice healing and I put out verbal intentions for each person. With the clients that I had relationships with their loved ones, I was able to get them on the phone and, and make some of those things happen. But it was a very difficult time. Yeah. And I and I feel grateful to have had the honor to be able to enter the door with the training I had and the staff agreeing to the work that we were doing, which was very powerful. Oh, I, I can't even imagine the depth of connection mm-hmm. that you, you made with people who were frightened. Yes. And, and isolated. Yes. Did you find that you were doing a lot of calming and damage control with the loved ones who couldn't come in? Mm-hmm. I mean, they must have been panicky. Mm-hmm. And... So it wasn't that you were just um, helping the people in in those places. It was the family that was just traumatized by this. So it seems like you were having to work both ends. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a great team of support. So there was the grief side. And I very much, my skill set is the in-person. So I, you know, behind my husband's back would drive 45 minutes to go visit three dying people. Yeah. When my kids are learning at home and there was no food on the table for dinner and I should have been <laughs> cooking, I said, I'm out. <laughs> I'm going to visit these three. They need me way more than you all need me in this <laughs> house right now. So, yeah, and there were grief and bereavement individuals who supported me. So it was very much a supportive community that was providing these services. So at that volunteer time I was not as much connecting with families uh, just okay. one or two mm-hmm, who were just in tears grateful for the opportunity to see their loved one and you know our sense of hearing is the last thing to go and so having a phone be put up to somebody who is in the 11th hour who's about to die yeah that's the term we called um, before somebody crosses over the veil but having the phone up to their ear so they can hear their loved one and know that they're thinking of them and they're going to be okay. And 
if you know just that permission to do their work of dying oh that's beautiful it seems also that one of the things that really became clear as we look at that three-year span of the pandemic is the place of ritual and closing so many people passed they they couldn't do funerals they couldn't do ceremonies it was almost as if society had to put that on hold and until they could get until we could all get through the dangerous part of the pandemic and so ritual and closure seems to be a huge part in this dying process and what did you see in that like you 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 must have witnessed family frustration that they couldn't have some kind of honoring or they had to Mm -hmm. postpone it did you have to deal with that yeah so shalom did a butterfly ceremony for those that died that year and it was a zoom offering and families, and actually my family was included. Uh, my grandmother, Connie Ross, passed during that time mm. as well. So that is my connection to that volunteer job. So she was a part of that ceremony in addition to other individuals that I served that had passed. So one of the head doulas, the woman who pioneered the end of life doula program at Shalom, she put on a beautiful ritual ceremony for all families. And there were a hundred plus individuals that attended. And each person's name was said. Nita had us um, bring water and she did a water ritual and use some herbs and had us close our eyes. Mm. And it was a very mindful ceremony that she conducts in different spaces for different families. So it was a, a combination of a lot of good people coming together yeah. to to provide. I also have helped families set up Zoom calls and help them kind of put an intention of what it will look like. And again, we talked about boundaries. So with the invitation, what are you inviting folks to do to honor this person who's passed? Because it can go many different directions. Yeah. So I was personally a part of Zoom experiences that were very intentional and meaningful. And I and again, I'm somebody who was anti all of this for many years. So it can happen and it did happen. And then there are folks who decided to wait and do things safely outside. So this is, again, the doula role was bringing families options. Yeah. It's not going to be possibly this way you thought it was going to be. But how can we be flexible and still create that closure that's going to work for your family? So brainstorming. Is it everybody putting on a purple shirt and going on a Zoom call? in mm-hmm. honor of Jean. So it's so, the simple things that make the big difference. Oh, absolutely. And it seems like uh, you're a natural problem solver. <laughs> you know, like your attitude comes across that this is happening. What can we do? Mm-hmm. What are our options? What are the opportunities here? Mm-hmm. Uh, that just seems to be a, a, a strong undercurrent of when you talk, which is delightful. <laughs> I'd like to ask you in all your years of experience and all the things you've done, what was probably the most challenging thing you took on? Hmm. Um, that's a very difficult question, Pat. Okay. Um, well, back to the elder abuse, I guess one of the hardest things that hit me 
to do and to create my sense of clarity of the type of work that I am willing and able to do was because I was bullied and felt you know, verbally abused Mm -hmm. when I was in an agency setting getting prerequisites done for nursing school at St. Kate's. So I was the oddball out who happened to be educated. My age, my background was the oddball out. And that was probably one of the most difficult situations watching how individuals were treated so poorly, which is why I started my business. And I thought to myself, I can't save the world. But just to put a quick plug in, in the event that Navigating Elderhood has become such a successful business. I have opened up a training program for other individuals who are looking to be elder advocates and caregivers. Really? So I have a compassionate caregiving program. So what what was so hard and what I saw needed to change, I knew I could only worry about myself and do it individually one-to-one. And then in that knowing, in my experience, I have had so many medically trained professionals who are looking to leave the medical world to do the work I'm doing. How did you get into this? What do you do? How do you do it? So I currently am on my second professional training program that I created with four different lessons and then one-to-one coaching. So I think from the hard, Mm -hmm. I decided to, you know, I can only serve individuals 20 hours a week because caregiver burnout, which is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. And so the other 20 hours a week I put into, I'm training right now. So, and I have a mentee and this is a new program, but it's developing and it's gone very well so far. I'd have to say, I'm struck by the fact that you took something very dark and turned it into a light. You're a light maker, that you created something that because of what happened to you, you became proactive and you started this magnificent training program. And I can't even imagine the ripple effect of that training program, let alone the ripple effect of the lives you touch and the work you do. It's like you got you got a multiverse here, not a universe going, but you got a multiverse of uh, this outreach that will have just has tremendous effect to train people to have that compassion and given the tools. Oh, that's huge. Well, then that leads me to my my last question. In all the work that you do, what gives you the greatest joy? The wisdom from those that I'm able to serve. It often, it feels like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this work. I should be paying for this work. You know, simple things from one individual who was just so grateful to have me come over and hand her her washcloth while she did the rest in her shower. And to this day, I use a washcloth in my shower. I dug them out of the linen closet. And it's the simple thing. It's also the individuals who continue to share perspective on how we're all individuals. And I just carry with me this wisdom that my teenage daughter wakes up with different hormones every day. Mm. Her where she's at. My clients have experience and wisdom that I don't. And this shared knowledge, this shared love, this shared intimacy is the beauty of this work. It's mm. that true connectedness in raw, vulnerable situations. And it just works. It's hard. It can be messy. 
But in the end of the day, it's all worth it because my clients who have humor about it, they keep it light. So that's probably one of the biggest joys is the humor that my clients bring to my work. That's Ah, it. Yeah. That's what does it for me. So. Well, I think the spirit of our discussion can be summed up with this quote, care is a state in which something does matter. It is the source of human tenderness. And I think what you do is very much about that, that statement. Thank you, Corey, for coming on Filter Capacity and sharing, oh God, the wonderful and important work that you do. Thank you for this opportunity today to share with others. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you listeners for joining us today. If you've enjoyed Filter Capacity, tell your friends and subscribe. Thank you. Bye.